caricatures can be a, a funny thing. Uh, I think we, we know what those are. Uh, we're very familiar with them. It's uh, a drawing, a sketch of some kind where you take a prominent, striking feature, uh, usually of a person's face, and then you exaggerate that. You sort of blow it up bigger than it uh, actually really is. And usually we see these characters in the realm, of course, of, of politics and, and the intent behind the artist and what they're trying to do. And, of course, there's an agenda in that is to identify uh, who it is, so you're, you're clear, you know, because of these prominent features that have been exaggerated. Uh, it's to identify uh, who it is that you are, are uh, marking out, and it's also to critique them as well. They're, they're cartoonish, uh, they're entertaining, um, they're two-dimensional, and just as often misleading. Caricatures. Now, the caricatures don't just have to exist on a, on a piece of paper, the product of, of an artist, um, they can also exist in our minds. Caricatures, ideas, concepts, ways that we have exaggerated things, played up certain things and played down certain things. There, there can be huge things that we can walk around every day, uh, caricatures that we can have in our own minds and hearts. And this morning I want to talk about this, the caricatures that we have of the demonic realm. Caricatures of the host of hell itself. Uh, on the one hand, you have caricatures that go like this. I say demons, you think little creatures in red suits with horns and cloven hooves and a tail and a pitchfork. That's what comes to your mind. Maybe even this little dude sitting on the shoulder over here with a little white winged dude over here caricatures. On the other hand, that's just as cartoonish and just as misleading is this caricature of an idea that we have. It's what's referred to as dualism. This idea that within the spiritual realm, that the demons are an equal footing in power and authority with the living God Himself. And reality is an outworking of the struggle between the two as if it really was a battle of equals. That is just as cartoonish. It is just as much of a caricature. It's just as much of a lie as the cartoon. Both are wrong. And the Christian vision, oh my friends, the Christian vision is so much deeper. It is sobering. But it is so much more encouraging than these cartoons that we carry around in our heads. I ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew 8. Uh, we're continuing on in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. This is towards the, the very end of chapter 8. Uh, if you're trying to find that in your Bible, uh, whether it's uh, something you're clicking on or turning with, it's the first book of the New Testament, the first of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in Matthew, Matthew 8, verses 28 through 34. I ask you now to follow along silently with me as I, as I read the text. Hear now the Word of God. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. 
And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. Going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw Him, they begged Him to leave their region. Let's pray together. Lord, Your perfect law can revive our soul. Your sure testimony can make wise the simple. Your right precepts can bring joy to our hearts. Your pure commandments can enlighten our eyes. Your true rules are righteous all together. Richer than the greatest of riches. Sweeter, as the psalmist says, than the drippings of the honeycomb. We need this. Our hearts, our minds, were made to hear passages like this in every other one, in every other chapter, in every other book. From the table of contents to the maps within your holy word. We ask that you would dig ears, that you would help us to hear. We ask that you would clear away all the misconceptions, and there are so many that we have when it comes to this issue. We would just as soon not even deal with this. We would just as soon ignore it. We can't, because you have put it here before us. We ask that you would help us to think rightly, to believe rightly, to live in light of these things, to live in reliance upon you in sight, embracing your goodness and love for us and your power, authority demonstrated over all. In your name we pray. Amen. Matthew's message here in this gospel again and again and again, it comes out uh, again and again, is the kingdom has come, the kingdom has come, and Jesus is the king. And he shows this again and again through his spoken word and through his deeds, through his teaching as well as dramatic miracles. And already in Matthew 8, we have seen a host of these miracles. If you go back and look, you can see we have and looked at this over the last several weeks. His cleansing of a leper, his healing of the centurion's servant, his healing of Peter's mother-in-law, and then a whole bunch of other folks there in the town of Capernaum. Uh, his, we looked at this last week, his stilling of a storm uh, there on the Sea of Galilee. Each one of these, every one of these miracles are signs. Uh, real events in space and time, historical events, but they're signs pointing towards things beyond themselves. At least these three things. Jesus' character is manifested in every one of these miracles. His heart for those that are involved. They are foretastes of the coming, the full coming of the kingdom upon his return. And then also a taste, a glimpse of his power, of his authority over everything, over all that is. And what Matthew is, is in, in, in essence imploring us to do as he's writing this down and setting it before us is to what I'll call connect the dots. 
What I mean by that is, well, you know what the connected dots is, right? The, the, the old the puzzles, those books. I mean, our kids as they were growing up loved those things, and we kind of love them too by default. You know, when it's bedtime, spend some time quieting down, doing that. Or on the road trips, just something to kind of keep busy, to settle, to settle the mind, to settle the heart. Something that's satisfying. You know, as you as you move from one dot to another in numerical progression, and this picture forms, right? This picture forms that, that apparently wasn't there before, something you can see now that wasn't there before. As you're moving numerically, progressing through, you've got something you can see. I'm saying that with Matthew 8, we need to connect the dots. Not in numerical progression now, but in logical progression, thinking it through together. Uh, if Jesus has power and authority over this huge thing, then how much more does he have power and authority over all these lesser things? You with me? It's, it's the argument from greater to lesser. The logical progression that we need to, to move through that, again, I would add, frankly, sat, settles the heart and satisfies the mind as, as well. Last week we looked at this calming of the storm, the text that just immediately precedes this, verses 23 through 27. I, I just said in passing, and I come back to it now, I said in passing last week, that this storm is described as a seismos, a seismograph. It was a great shaking there upon the waters. It was a storm that was more than just a storm. It's an event that leads not just logically and chronologically to this event, but in, in, in some other way. Thematically, I guess you could say, but also maybe even more so than that, there seems to be something supernatural going on here. In that passage and this passage, it's implicit in that one, explicit in, in this one. The seismos, the shaking that's taking place. And what we see is that Jesus, here in our text this morning, Jesus is Lord over the host of hell itself. Jesus is Lord with authority and power over the demonic forces. And as we see that, we see all the more that we can trust Him. That we can trust Him. Oh my goodness, if indeed, and He does, have power and authority over the demonic forces, then how much more, if we, if we can trust Him there, how much more than can I trust him with everything? Oh my goodness, everything. No, nothing. There's no exception now at this point by the time you get to the end of Matthew 8. Now, that said, before we get into uh, his reign over the demonic powers, we've got to take a step back and just deal with the reality of the demonic powers. Now, let's be honest. We're, we're sophisticated people. I mean, there's a lot of skepticism, I don't doubt within your heart of hearts, tempted to just sort of dismiss this. And a lot of people do. A lot of very smart people do. They would say that, that accounts like this are simply uh, ancient writers struggling to try and grapple with just something that was nothing but physical. And they're just putting this weird name on it, possession, oppression of the demonic realms. Well, is that right? I would say no, and I think the Scripture is pretty clear on this point. So let's talk about the reality of the demonic 
powers. And let's talk about their origin. Where do the demons come from? In order to do that, we've got to take a big step back and talk about angels. Angels are personal, intelligent, moral creatures created by God. At some point, just like mankind, they were given a foc- there was a focal test of faithfulness and obedience. Some passed that test in faithfulness and obedience, and they now serve for eternity, what we think of as angels today, uh, worshiping and serving God gladly around the throne and serving as His agents in this world, serving and ministering to His people. Okay? ton more I could say. That's just a simple summary of, of angels. Now that said, not all pass that focal test of faithfulness and obedience. Satan is their leader. A fallen angel. Uh, Described in in no few ways in the New Testament, we get some glimpses into what he's like. Here are some of his titles. The evil one, the father of lies, the tempter, the accuser, the deceiver, the destroyer, the prince, the ruler of this world. The demons are fallen angels. They are Satan's minions. They are his servants. All of whom have been eternally cast out of God's presence. Okay? That's the origin. That's the, the background of what we're seeing here. These are creatures all right, in rebellion against their Creator, which takes us then from the origin to their agenda. So not just where do they come from, but what are they about? What do they, what, what do they want to do? Uh, they are hostile to God, intensely hostile to God. I mean, that's the only thing on their agenda, to to try and disrupt his plans, his purposes in this world, to, if I can put it this way, desecrate his image bearers, like like cosmic vandals, okay? Uh, They're in leading to to tyranny on earth, I'll call it that, Uh, inflicting and exploiting Misery, suffering, physically, spiritually, all different kinds. Uh, Deceiving, discouraging, muddling the minds and understanding of their victims. That's their agenda. Which then takes us into this case study of Matthew 8. How we see all these things kind of coming out here in, in this text. So, Matthew 8, verse 28. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And by the way, you can read some parallel passages in the in the other two of the other Gospels, Mark 5 and, and uh, Luke 8, also speak of this. Matthew is compressing a lot of the details that you see there in those parallel passages. But here's what we see going on here. Think of the effect. The effect of the, of the demon's work in this context, in this particular occasion, on these men. Oh, the suffering. We don't know how long. But the, the intense suffering, the oppression, physically, socially, spiritually, cut off. It's a foretaste of hell itself, is what you see here, that these men are living. You see, also, the, subtly, Matthew alludes to it in the impact of the, demo, of the demon's work on the larger community as well. Because in response to Jesus' miracle, 
we see they are more concerned with material financial loss, the pigs, than they are in terms of what's happened. And then how do they respond to Jesus himself? Get out! Leave us! Well, who does that sound like? The demons themselves. I mean, it's a terrifying image that Matthew's painting for us here, if we could just see it, what the implications. Now, there's a question that I want to deal with before we move on any further, and that is, why is it that we see something of what looks like an uptick, an upsurge of demonic activity in the Gospels, much more so than at any point before and at any point after? What's going on there? Why do we see this? Why is it that Jesus is dealing with things like this again and again and again? Well, think with me as what's going on, the big picture. He's the rightful king. Come to reclaim what is his. Satan and his hordes. This is a desperate attempt on their part to dig in their heels and to hold their ground. It will fail. But it's a desperate, flailing attempt is what you're seeing here. That's why you're seeing the upsurge, the uptick in the demonic activity as Jesus arrives on the scene. My point being, just you know, summary, this is real. What we're reading of here is real. And if you want to take the Bible seriously, you have to take demons seriously. You can't really have one without the other unless you want to play editor. It's why we see reports from missionaries on the frontier that don't sound that different than this from time to time. It's why, and I'm going to go out on a limb on this, and say I think this is partly what's behind some of our ghost stories and tales of haunted places. Some of you know Bo and Megan Arnold. Uh, they've been a part of this congregation off and on for some time, and they're currently stationed in Fort Bragg coming back in, in a few months. Megan uh, passed on this account to our family just a few months ago uh, that she heard direct, firsthand, from a professor, a well-esteemed, well-respected professor at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte. Now, I'm not going to give you his name simply because I haven't talked to him to get his permission to tell you I'm doing this. But I'm going to read you an email that Megan sent me just this past week because I asked her, okay, I'm trying to remember... This, this, and this about the account. Did I get it right? And this is what she relayed back to me. When he and his wife, this is the professor and his wife, were attempting to buy the family home on his family's old plantation property, the current owner, who had put a lot of money into renovations, was asking a considerable amount for the house. One reason they later discovered for her wanting to sell it was that there were mysterious electrical issues which would go on in the house. Light sometimes not working and other issues I'm not sure about. No electrician could find anything wrong. In addition, she had invited a couple to stay in her house during an absence, and after one night, so many weird electrical issues occurred that they were spooked and left. After this incident, she, that's the owner, determined to lower the price considerably so that they, the professor and his wife, were able to finally afford it. I'm not sure how long after they moved in that the following occurred. The couple, the professor and his wife, were sure that the electrical issues in the home were due to an evil spirit. They called the elders of the church here, this verified by one of the elders in my hearing, and prayed over the home. They heard a shatter in an uninhabited bedroom, 
which legend says had belonged to an ancestor who had committed suicide in that room. Upon entering the room, they discovered a hole in the window. After inspecting, they felt sure the window had broken from the inside towards the out, as evidenced by the glass shards being outside the window instead of the inside. No one was in the house. They, had never, they never had the electrical issues again. This story was told in utter seriousness. Now, I know I'm telling you this, and some of us here in this room are still skeptical and dismissive of what I'm saying. And I want you to hear me. That is a reflection of our arrogance and our cultural, chronological snobbery that refuses to be open to accounts like this and, by the way, leaves us open to some things we ought not to be open to. And if I can just speak to Christians directly, I alluded to this earlier, you say you believe the Bible is the inerrant, authoritative Word of God, and yet you're not willing to take this seriously. How do you do that? Why would you do that? You are cutting yourself off from reality and distancing yourself from so much confidence and boldness of heart and spirit. Jesus, you see, is the king. Through this account of the healing of these demoniacs, we can see the extent to which his reign and lordship goes and how deeply we can trust him. Why would we cut this out of the pages of the book? Which then finally takes me to the second point which is, in fact, you know, talking about his reign over the demonic power. So let's get into that, just for a few minutes. Uh, his authority, uh, we see that in verses 28 and 29. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? All right, you have these words from the demons. They ask a question, and in their question, Oh, goodness, do they betray so much hatred. And, and fear of Jesus. They know who he is as the rightful king. And they know what awaits them. And so they ask this question. And then they make a request. Verses 30 through 31. And now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged them, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And notice, they don't plead for mercy They simply plead for a delay in their destruction. They're not interested in asking for mercy from him. That's how twisted up, if I can put it this way, the heart of a demon is. They will ask for nothing but a delay in their destruction. What then of the destruction of the pigs? What's going on there? Clearly the demons do not have in mind a new host in these, I think it's 2,000 pigs, as Luke or Mark tells us. They just want an opportunity to express their rage. They just want to burn the house down. That's what's going on here. Jesus then, that's the words of the demons. Here's Jesus' word, verse 32. And he said to them, go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in 
the waters. Here we get a glimpse, a glimpse of, of, of how what, what was holding, what was oppressing, what was possessing these men. Here we get a glimpse of may, may, what may well have awaited them. And we get a glimpse of what certainly awaits Satan and the demonic powers. A glimpse, if you will, a living parable and what happens to these, these pigs. But more than anything else, you get a glimpse into Jesus' authority. This command that he gets. He refuses to parley. He refuses to bargain. He just gives a command. And the response is, is instant. Showing his, his dominion and his dominance over them. Now, that's his victory over, uh, it's his authority, which then this is manifested in this victory. I, then, well, what, what of us, though? The implications for us. His authority, how does that tie to our security? What difference might this make for you and I today? Well, Jesus' uh, authority here anticipates his victory later. What's coming? Uh, and and Ma Matthew records that towards the very end of his gospel, as do the other gospel writers. Paul, decades later, reflects on this. And if you want to keep your thumb there in Matthew uh, 8, go with me to Colossians, Colossians chapter 2. Um, you've got the Gospels and Acts and Romans and the Corinthian letters and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 2, starting in verse 13. Listen to how Paul reflects on what, was, what Jesus has accomplished, what we see in Matthew 8 is, is being anticipated. You and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension in that the hosts of hell are broken. Uh, the, our penalty, our debt has been paid uh, they have been thoroughly trounced, utterly defeated, and publicly shamed before the whole of creation is, is the imagery that's there. So that's Jesus' victory over all his foes. Our union with him means we share in all that he has accomplished. He is our king. We are his subjects. We are bound in a union with him. We share in his victory. The demons may still be active in this world, but we have nothing to fear because Jesus is the conquering king with, with, with rule and authority over all. So, the, so back to point one, there's the reality of the demonic powers, but point two, Jesus reigns over them. Image, D-Day, June 6, 1944. Allied forces hit the beaches of Normandy, France. In so doing, once that beachhead is established by the end of that bloody day, the outcome of the war is certain. Absolutely certain. Hitler's going down. Now, German, the German army can and will resist. And the Allied forces, as they push into the interior, can and will feel the brunt of that resistance. But the outcome is sure. 
His defeat, Hitler's defeat, was imminent. My friends, that's the stage of history we live in right now. Between D-Day and V-Day. The outcome is assured. Yes, there's resistance. But the outcome, the victory, is there's no debate about that. Where the pages of, of cosmic history is heading. So what then does this mean of the demon's hatred of God and his purposes? Well, it means, of course, they can resist, and they will resist, and they do resist. But nothing is ultimately going to thwart God's plans and purposes, what he has determined is going to happen. What then does that mean for the demon's hostility towards God's people? Is it possible, let me be specific, is it possible for a Christian to be possessed by a demon, controlled by a demon, like we see here in this text? No, absolutely not. Because we are in union with Christ, indwelt by his Holy Spirit. It is impossible for a Christian to be possessed then by the hordes, the hosts of hell. We can be, oh, goodness gracious, tempted, accused, deceived, harassed, but never possessed. Never possessed. So what then ought to be our concern regarding the demonic forces? What ought we to be aware of? I would argue, and I think the text supports this, not the dramatic sorts of things, not the flashy sorts of things, but just, can I put it this way? The ordinary subtle things. Screw tape letters kinds of things. Just, just, the demons doing what they can in their own nefarious ways to get us to question God's power and goodness towards us. To get us to become increasingly stubbornly beholden to our idols. That's what we need to be aware of, chiefly, in terms of their activity. But even still, the king is the king. Even still, the king rules, and the, his purposes for his people will come to pass without any uncertainty in this whatsoever, because V-Day is coming. V-Day is, is coming. So you see in this healing, we see, oh my goodness, how we can trust him how he can lean into him and, and, and must be, must continue to be. Let me end with this. Another greater to lesser than argument. And I don't know how long this one's been around, probably since the late 60s, because it goes like this. If we can put a man on the moon, we can do, and then you fill in the blank, whatever it is that's driving you nuts. Now we can say, if we can put a robot on Mars... Or in orbit, you know, I mean, you may have even seen the, uh, the news this past week, ExoMars, this uh, joint venture between the European Space Agency and the Russian Space Agency, where they just stuck a probe in orbit around Mars. It was a you know, craft like this, and they got up there, and once they got in a certain range, one of them is orbiting, uh, examining the atmosphere, and the other one, well, unfortunately, it didn't make it through the hard landing. Um, it, it actually exploded, we think, on, on impact. Um, but still... It's pretty impressive. You know, certainly you think about the other ventures that, that we've uh, had in terms of sending stuff up. So anyway, here, here's the point. If we can put an orbit, or if we can put a, a, a robot around and on Mars, how much more then can we or should we, you know, I don't know, you fill in the blank, whatever drives you nuts from a technological standpoint. Okay, connect the dots. That's all I'm trying to do here. 
Connect the dots. Let's, what about, how would that play out here? Connect the dots. The witnesses, those who saw what they did that day. The two men, the former demoniacs, that's the weird term. Um, the two former demoniacs, as they went forward from that place, actually the other Gospels tell us they became believers, became missionaries in that part of, they're on the, on the east side of the Jordan River, or, or, or the Sea of Galilee, rather. If, you, if you're one of those men, are you going to forget this, what happened that day? Is that not going to have some shaping effect down the road in the days to come when things get hard? What he did for you? What he was able to do for you and through you and in you? Or the disciples? These men who are later going to be sent forth into this world and are going to experience hostility and opposition themselves. They've seen this happen. Will this not hearten them and bolden them as they go forth? Uh, it, apparently it did. The historical record's pretty clear. Um, what about us? What about us? Martin Luther put it this way. The devil is God's devil. Because he's a defeated enemy. We can just extrapolate from that and say the demons are God's demons. Not, not in terms of you know, personal ownership, but in terms of like, you know, slang. He owns them. Their power and the duration of their work goes no further than he will ever allow. Like a mad dog's on a chain. Who holds that chain? Jesus does. What have we to fear? What have you to fear? What have I to fear? When we know who this Jesus is and his power and authority over even the hosts of hell. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for freeing these men that day and their unimaginable misery. We thank you for what you showed forth of yourself and your reign and your kingdom. We can see, we get a glimpse of how we really truly have nothing to fear. We pray though that you would help us because we don't do so well at this. We are so prone to forget everything we've been pouring over the last few minutes before we can get out of the parking lot. We ask, please, would you help us to connect the dots? Would you help us to grapple with these things and how they play out in our own lives this week? That this is the world in which we live. And this is the King that we follow. And pray in your name. Amen. Let me ask our ushers to come.